1 Kings 4, we'll read verses 20 through 34. Chapters, I believe, 3 or 4 through somewhere to 8 or 9 um, are about the reign of Solomon, and they, they just depict the glory and the majesty of Solomon's reign. Uh, so we're just going to read a small piece of that from First uh, Kings 4, beginning then in verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Geza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon, and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking. Barley also, and straw for the horses, and swift seeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, Kalkal, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke three thousand proverbs, and his songs were one thousand and five. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So far from uh, 1 Kings 4, then we'll turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2, this will be the text that we'll be particularly focusing on this morning. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 1. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. 
I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king, only what has already been done? Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all who have been will have been, all, all, all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be, a, whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity." So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So far from Ecclesiastes, then we'll also turn to the New Testament to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, 
Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So far the reading of God's word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 39, stanzas 3 and 4. text, as I mentioned, the text that we'll be focusing on in particular is Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We won't read that chapter over, but you might be helped by having your Bibles open as we'll be working through that chapter. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week we began our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes and we started by laying out some of the big ideas and big themes of this book. Uh, We looked at Solomon's conclusion, especially, that life is missed. Uh, This word, hebel, this word, vanity, uh, mist, vapor, breath, that Solomon concludes this is life. Uh, Life is elusive, it cannot be grasped, and it cannot even be fully understood here under the sun. As we work through then, as we work through chapter one, which is more of a poetic uh, section, laying out the uh, big picture for us, uh, we we saw that theme coming back again and again. We saw that life is fleeting, uh, life is repetitive, uh, life is insatiable. You remember the streams running on into the sea, and the sea never being uh, full. Life is exhausting, he says, and life is in so many ways utterly futile. 
There's no gain. That's the conclusion he says at the end. There's no gain for man under the sun from all his toil. There's no reward, no sense of meaningful progress. Now, as we saw last week, and we're going to see that again this week, that's a terribly depressing message for Solomon to teach. But Solomon isn't teaching that message simply for us to get depressed, but it's rather to direct our eyes and our hearts away from ourselves to find our meaning, our satisfaction in God who rules over life. Uh, This book does carry a, a tremendously depressing message for those who are hoping to get something out of this life for themselves by their own strength and their own doing. Uh, It's a depressing message for those who are building their lives like a castle in the sand, trying to tell themselves the tide is not going to sweep this thing away. It is. And that's a sad message uh, for those who are holding on to a vain hope. But it's a true message, uh, and insofar as uh, that might be a description of us, it's a message we need to hear so that we too would direct our eyes towards God who rules over this life. And so we finished last time on the conclusion that Solomon expresses uh, what is crooked in this life uh, is seemingly impossible to straighten. You can't make this life uh, better. You can't fix what is broken Uh, As much as we want to believe otherwise, we we just never succeed. Uh, As much as we want to go through life thinking, no, 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 no. Once I obtain this, then life is going to make sense. Then life is going to be good. Then things are going to go smoothly for myself. What Solomon says is it never happens. It never happens. You never get there. Uh, What is crooked cannot be straightened. That's this life under the sun, under the curse. Uh, that God is placed on this world. Uh, As Paul says, this creation is subjected to futility, and you can't fix that, because God is the one who subjected it. It is for God to fix. Now, that's Solomon's conclusion. And then what Solomon does now in chapter 2 is he walks us down some of the dead-end roads in his life that led him to that conclusion. It's kind of like if you're, uh, if any of you kids remember math class, wasn't that long ago, right? Um, your teacher would always tell you when you're in math class, uh, you can't just give me the answer; you have to show the math, right? You see, you've heard that. You have to show the math, and that's what Solomon is doing. He's showing the math that led him to this conclusion. Uh, he, he, he's showing these are the roads I walked down. These are the dead-end roads that I gave my life to, and that's how I got to the conclusion uh, that I got to. Uh, That's how I know that that things we pursue are wind. They are mist. They are vain. Uh, And in this chapter, then, if we're willing to listen to it and sort of walk down this road with Solomon, it's incredibly helpful because Solomon is walking us down these roads so that we don't have to so that we don't have to spend our lives pursuing the vain and empty things that he did spend his life pursuing. Uh, And the thing with Solomon is, Solomon goes down these roads with more resources at his disposal than any of us have ever possessed. So sometimes we believe the lie that this road is worth going down if only I had more of whatever, more of this or that, more money or, or, or more friends or whatever. If I had more, then this road would be fulfilling for me. Well, Solomon says, I've had more than you ever will have. 
I had more at my disposal than you could hope to have. And I'm telling you, these roads are dead-end roads. And no one of us had more fame, more power, better food, more wives or concubines. And yet none of these things, uh, as much as our culture tells us, these things are going to make you happy. None of these things ever do. I want to encourage particularly the young people here in our congregation. You still have to chart the road in front of you. Your life still still sits there in in front of you. Uh, And this book was particularly written for young people who are pondering the meaning of their lives and deciding, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to give my life to? Uh, And there are a thousand temptations along that road enticing us to say, uh, give your life to this. This will make you happy, whether it's money or fame or popularity or or power. Uh, These things entice us and promise us, if you give your life to this, it it will give you satisfaction. It will be a great reward. And Solomon's urging us uh, to listen and, and watch and see where that road actually goes. Uh, Solomon then begins with, with the road of pleasure, the road of pleasure and laughter. That's what he says in verse 1, I, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? This is the, the approach to life that might be summed up uh, that, that says, since life is short, have a good time. Uh, life is short, so have a good time. Pursue pleasure. Well, Solomon was equipped to do that, perhaps more than anyone else in the history of mankind, uh, with all of his vast resources. We read about that in, in uh, 1 Kings 4, the, the amazing provisions that were given to Solomon. Uh, if you count it all up, uh, the, the, the provisions that were given to him, uh, this would be sufficient provision for some thirty to 40,000 people. Uh, that's, that's what was given to Solomon, uh, including uh, then on top of that, Solomon's 600 wives and 300 concubines, all their children and their parents, their servants, uh, and so forth. So uh, Solomon's palace and all his servants and his royal guard, uh, all of it was, was just amazing beyond belief. He had so much power, so many resources uh, available uh, the, the parties, you can just imagine the parties that took place in Solomon's palace uh, with all of these people and all of this, this wealth, uh, elaborate parties that probably would have lasted throughout the night as Solomon's saying, I'm going to test myself with pleasure. I'm going to give myself whatever my heart desires. Sort of makes you think of the, the, the luxurious parties in, in France before the, uh, the French Revolution, these, the crazy hairstyles and, and the, the fancy drinks and, and just the immense uh, money that was poured into those parties. Uh, and, and the jesters that were there, the jesters who were uh, fully employed, it was their full-time job just to provide entertainment for uh, the, the royalty. That's what Solomon had as well. Now Solomon looks on all that and he says it was meaningless. Uh, It it meant nothing. Uh, It was empty. Uh, It was senseless. And he says even more, it was madness. He says of laughter, a life that's that's just laughter, that's all it is, it's just pleasure and laughter, is is not only meaningless, it's mad. It's insane. Uh, You you might think that, that at least if someone gave their life to happiness... You know, if, you, if you're going to pursue one thing in your life and you say, I'm going to pursue happiness, you might think that uh, maybe you'd lose everything else but at least get happiness. But what Solomon discovers is you don't even get happiness. 
Because if you give your life to pursuing it, you won't find it. It is elusive. It's beyond your grasp. This is such a chilling commentary on our own culture, isn't it? Uh, Since our own culture is saying this is the life that's worth pursuing. Uh, How much do we spend on entertainment and on pleasure? Uh, How much do we spend particularly on comedy since since Solomon's highlighting laughter? Uh, Look at Netflix. Look at all the TV shows uh, that are produced for the sole purpose of making you laugh for an hour and a half. How much money, how much work is poured into producing those shows uh, year after year after year so that we, we all, uh, as a culture, have this steady stream of comedy that can just fill our, our minds with laughter so we forget our existence as we laugh our lives away. Solomon says it's meaningless. It's an empty life. And the frightening thing is that at the end of it all, uh, it amounts uh, to, to nothing at all. There's no gain Uh, from comedy. You know, at least, if we're talking movies, at least tragedies, uh, the difficult movies that we watch, at least those give us some sort of lasting uh, impression, some uh, lasting lesson. But the comedies, which we often gravitate towards instead, we'd often prefer to watch a comedy. Uh, As soon as we see them and, and, and they're done, they leave us with no lasting value at all. When everything's funny, then nothing's funny anymore. It's just sad, and, and isn't that our culture? Uh, everything's funny, but really, really nothing is funny anymore. And so Solomon, at the end of his uh, flamboyant life of partying, uh, he asks himself whether it satisfied him, whether it gave him the, the meaning and, and purpose he was looking for, and his conclusion is, no, it, it didn't even come close. Uh, it, it's meaningless, and it's empty. Uh, now Solomon's point in saying that is not that laughter is bad. It's not that pleasure is, is wrong. No, we're going to see actually later on in this book, he actually commends laughter and pleasure. He says these are good things. They're gifts from God. But his point is, living for these things, if you're saying that's what I'm going to live for, that's the purpose of my life, that is a meaningless and empty and even a mad pursuit. Well, after that, Solomon tries alcohol. Uh, after all, doesn't Psalm 104 say this, that, that God gave wine to gladden the heart of man? So Solomon embraces alcohol. Can that make a person happy? He says, verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay a hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during all the days of their lives. Uh, now, Let's deal with this, this phrase. He says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. Uh, what he means there is, is, is not that he was not sinning, uh, but what he means is he was keeping in mind his pursuit of finding wisdom, trying to find out what's worth living for. And so he says, I'm going to get drunk, but I'm not going to forget why. I'm here to find out, is this worth living for? Uh, so the point is, it's not that it wasn't sin or that it wasn't foolish. It means that he was, he was as you might say, sinning with his eyes open. He was sinning, knowing what he was doing, to see whether it would be worth it. Uh, And so the question is posed then, uh, is that the best life? Is the drunk life the best life? Uh, Maybe that's the answer to life. Just stay drunk or stay high uh, and you'll forget the meaninglessness of your existence. But of course it doesn't take a genius to see that that too is, is really madness. 
Uh, you only need to be the one sober person in the room, right, uh, to be able to look out at everyone else who's drunk or high to realize that, that I don't want to be uh, that person. Uh, even if they're happy idiots, you, you don't envy them. Uh, it's senseless. It's mindless. Uh, and, of course, it's ultimately destructive, destructive to the body, destructive to the mind, to the relationships, uh, and, and to all else in life. Alcohol and drugs, they may have uh, the power to to make the body feel happy at a superficial level for a time, but that time is always too brief, and it always uh, you always pay the price with interest when it's over. And so Solomon thinks, well, maybe maybe we can solve the problem by sort of turning it on its head. Maybe the answer to life is not in consuming, but in producing. That's where Solomon goes in verse 4. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves born in my house and had great possessions of herds and flocks, many more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So he gives his life to pursuing uh, building a great empire. Uh, Perhaps some of us are looking for the answer there, Uh, building for ourselves a life, whether it's chasing after real estate, getting up one step uh, in in the ladder, getting to that nicer neighborhood, uh, obtaining the house of our dreams, setting it up, decorating it, planting the gardens, and we say, that's going to give my life fulfillment. Now, again, nothing wrong with any of those things. But the question is, does that satisfy you? Does building a business, does building a a home, uh, does that give the satisfaction that life demands? Well, the truth is, none of us are ever going to get it to the level where Solomon had it. Uh, The most amazing palaces built throughout his empire uh, with all these, like he says, gardens, gardens, orchards, uh, pools, uh, and and so forth. Uh, And and, and he gives himself to these projects hoping that they're going to give him meaning. But at the end of it all, he says, verse 11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Again, verse uh, 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. It's one of the great problems uh, that, that people encounter when they do give themselves to building a new life. You think of immigrants that come from abroad, they come from poverty or warfare, and they say, we're going to come here to Canada, and we're going to build ourselves a life, and they pour themselves into it, and they work hard uh, up at 5 in the morning, done work at 8 or, or, or later, uh, working, working, working to build themselves an empire, to be able to give their children a better life. And the sad thing is that so many of them discover their children who didn't labor for it, didn't toil for it, for it, don't see the value in it, and throw that life away. Uh, this is, in fact, what Solomon himself ultimately experienced. Even though uh, Solomon had, had written the better part of Proverbs to his own son, who would rule after him, uh, who was the son that came after Solomon? It's this palace brat, uh, Rehoboam, uh, this guy who, who, who just hangs out with the young people, doesn't listen to the, to the, uh, to, to the elders in the palace, uh, has no respect for the people that Solomon rules over, uh, and ultimately ruins the kingdom that Solomon built. In one generation, the thing is all destroyed. Who knows whether the one who comes after you will be wise or a fool? It's a serious problem uh, for those who think that building an empire is, is the answer to life. 
And so Solomon despairs. He says, what's it all for? At the end of the day, we're going to be forced to check out from this life uh, against our will, and you really have no control over who gets your stuff, uh, who gets the empire you build. He tries as well art and music in verse 8. He says, I got singers, both men and women, and we can assume that uh, like everything else in Solomon's life, this is the best of the best. These are the best uh, singers. And I'm sure it would have been amazing to sit in his palace and, and listen to these choirs. But is that the answer? Is that where meaning and satisfaction are going to be found? Well, Solomon recognizes even that does not satisfy the deepest longings of the heart. When the last song is sung, then silence will still fill the room and the heart will still be there longing for something more. And music and art are truly beautiful. Like, like the saying goes, they don't have lasting value, but they give lasting some value. Uh, but they don't serve as ends in themselves to justify living. Uh, Solomon then gave himself to, to every other pleasure. He says he had uh, many concubines behind, b- besides his uh, 600 wives. Uh, he says he refused himself nothing that his eyes desired. He journeyed down every road to see if that would give him uh, something. Uh, all, all the things that we ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, that we spend our years pursuing after, hoping to obtain. Solomon had these things. And he asks himself again, what's it all for? Is this all there is? And if so, he says, it's vanity. It's chasing after the wind. It's trying to grasp something that you can't catch. Then then, uh, Solomon also turns down the path of wisdom. You might think now he's finally getting somewhere. He's tried the paths of folly. And he says, now I'm going to try the path of wisdom. Now, I want to clarify something here. When Solomon's speaking of wisdom, uh, the wisdom that he's talking about here is, is not the God-centered wisdom that you'll find in the book of Proverbs that that's begins with the fear of the Lord, uh, but it's rather a, a wisdom that is limited to this perspective under the sun, to be the wisest of men in the world of men. Uh, it's, it's man's wisdom. Uh, the, the wisdom and insight that man can get for himself, not by, by reading the Word of God, but can get for himself by looking out at this world and studying this world. Uh, in, in contemporary terms, this is what we call philosophy. Uh, the, the Greek word philosophy just literally means the love of wisdom uh, and the pursuit of wisdom. Uh, and so Solomon goes down the road of, of philosophy. Rather than be the senseless fool, uh, why not be the wise philosopher? Perhaps there will be uh, answers to be found there. Uh, and it's really profound what, what Solomon says about that. He says, in the first place, he says, there, there is something there. He says, wisdom is better than folly, just like light is better than darkness. Uh, the wise man at least has eyes in his head where the fool doesn't even know where he's going. There's some value to wisdom. That's true, isn't it? It's it's actually one of the oldest questions that philosophers uh, have asked. uh, Is wisdom really better than folly? Uh, Is it better to be stupid and happy or to be wise and miserable? It's one of the the old questions that philosophers ponder. Which would you uh, prefer? Uh, Would you rather be the the deluded fool, uh, but who's happy in his delusion, or the wise man who's sober and somber because he knows what's true? Uh, would you rather be uh, the, the, the prisoner of war in a concentration camp, to, to put it in practical terms, uh, who's cheerful and happy because he's convinced that the, the reinforcements are coming tomorrow and, and the prison camp's going to be uh, liberated? Would you rather be him, though he's living a delusion, 
or his fellow prisoner who knows that no one's coming for help uh, and who is therefore much more sober? Who would you prefer to be? Well, somehow deep down we, we still understand there's something better to wisdom, even though it may make you uh, miserable. It's better to be wise than foolish. Uh, just like light is, is better than darkness. But then Solomon asks, why? For what? What's it better for? Uh, since you too, the wise too, will die just like the fool dies. If at the end of the day both the wise men and fool go to the grave, why should wisdom be any better than folly? What does it do for you? Uh, again, chapter uh, 1, verse 18, uh, he says, For in much wisdom there's much vexation, and he who increases knowledge only increases sorrow. So why pursue wisdom? If, if that's all it has to give you uh, is sorrow, why give yourself to it? And yet we know as human beings there's something there. It's worth pursuing. Uh, and so Solomon then, he's, he's taken us down every road that you can go down with, with greater resources than we could ever have. And he finds time and again it doesn't go anywhere. They're all dead-end roads. Uh, and so in the end, then, uh, in the end Solomon finally just despairs. He, he despairs of everything. Uh, he despairs of his, his parties. Uh, he despairs of his toil, his projects, his palaces, his wealth, and even, even his wisdom. And he says in the end, I just hated my life. I hated life because there's no reward. Whatever road you go down, there's nothing to find. Now we want to recognize Solomon is building an argument here. He's going somewhere with this. Uh, and we haven't yet gotten to the conclusion of, of that argument. Uh, but if we look ahead to, to verses 24 to 26, here Solomon does come to one at least preliminary conclusion. Uh, after having uh, gone down these roads and reflected on where they go, uh, he says at the end of this chapter, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Uh, Solomon's conclusion after he's gone down all the dead-end roads, once he's run himself out to the point of exhaustion, is he looks back on this world and he, and he sees one group of people, one group of people that seem to have actually found happiness. They found something good, uh, something that isn't vain. And it is those who know the favor of God. And isn't that a frightening truth? It is those whom God blesses, those who, who know the love of God, who somehow can stare the mist of life in the face and say, yeah, yeah, as far as we can see here under the sun, it's vanity. And yet our God rules and he cares for us uh, and he will provide for us. To the one who fears God, to the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. A look for meaning in this life. Determine for yourself that you're going to get it for yourself. And Solomon promises you, you'll never, ever find it. Uh, if all you're looking for is under the sun, you will not ever find it. Uh, but, but the one on whom God shows his favor, they seem to enjoy what escapes the grasp of everyone else. 
Now what Solomon is getting at, he hasn't said it yet explicitly, uh, but he will in the chapters to come. Uh, what he's getting at is the fear of God, a life lived in relationship with God, uh, is the only thing that will give joy. The f- and here's the frightening truth about that. The fear of God is a gift of God. God gives that to whom God chooses frightening thing because so many people will spend their lives pursuing emptiness and there's no way out for them except that God should grant them repentance. He says this is the gift of God. Uh, He says this is from the hand of God. Uh, So so, so Solomon does all this to lead us to stand before the sovereign throne of God. Uh, God is the one who gives. God is the one who chooses uh, who, will, who will know joy, who will experience meaning, uh, and who will p- continue to pursue uh, an empty life. The fear of God is the gift of God. And the fear of God gives a peace and a purpose that the world does not know. Uh, the fear of God, those who have it, they know how to leave the mystery of this life, the enigma of this life, in God's own hands. Uh, the fear of God keeps those uh, who, who have it uh, from striving after the wind, striving for that which life cannot give them uh, because they're not looking for life to satisfy them. They're looking for God to satisfy them, and they're confident that He will. They trust that the one who broke this life, who made it impossible to find fulfillment in this life, is the one who gives fulfillment after this life in His time. The one who broke it is the one who can fix it. And so the fear of God, what Solomon observes, uh, gives uh, an, an, an otherwise inexplicable joy in a futile world. They eat, they drink, they enjoy their toil, even though they know they live in the midst of this life. Uh, yet they know that God, in His mercy, has set His love over them, and they experience something that the world does not possess. Uh, the fear of God even gives purpose and meaning in the midst of, of this futility. Uh, Because the fear of God is able to entrust that meaning, that purpose, to God himself. Isn't that the prayer of Psalm 90? We sang it last week. Uh, God established the works of our hands. What that prayer confesses is, I can't establish the works of my hands. If, If I trust myself to leave something lasting and meaningful in this life, it will come to nothing. And so I leave that to the hands of God. God, you establish the works of my hands. You make it count because otherwise it will not count for anything. And so the fear of God uh, then also sees that we don't get to determine what purpose our life will serve, what, what, what result will come from our labors. That is not up to us to decide. Our calling is to be faithful, not to be God. Our calling is not to calculate uh, and to determine what's going to come out of all of my labor. I can't know that. I can't figure that out. But God can, uh, and the fear of God teaches me, I can serve Him, I can trust Him, and I can leave the results of all that in His hands. Uh, What we see then, uh, when we look back on all this, is that the one who doesn't fear God uh, will end up wasting his life in endless pursuits that lead nowhere uh, and will come up with nothing in the end. Uh, But the one, uh, this is how Solomon draws the contrast, but the one who fears God, the one on on whom God has set his favor, uh, he gives him wisdom and knowledge and joy, and also, at the end of it all, all of the results of uh, of the sinner's toil. 
The sinner toils for nothing, and in the end, it all will go to the one who fears God. Isn't that the promise of Christ? The, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's a scary thing for, for, for sinners who don't know God. Someone else is going to inherit all that you pursue after. It's a blessing for those who learn to fear God. The earth is yours. You will inherit it. It will all belong to you. Now, the one who fears God knows that everything in this life is futile, so he commits his life to God, uh, and the one thing that matters to him then is to stand there under the favor of God. Uh, And that, brothers and sisters, that's where the gospel comes into the message of Ecclesiastes. If there's nothing more important than standing in the favor of God, if that's the only thing that matters in this life, uh, and the thing that determines everything else, that's where the cross of Christ matters so much. Because you stand under the favor of God because of the mercy of God through the cross of Christ. Uh, The the gospel says, uh, you are a sinner, and by yourself would not stand under the favor of God. Your life would be empty. Your life would be meaningless. But through Christ, you get to be reconciled to God and brought into, uh, the, into eternity so that you can live this life with the confidence that God will make sense also of this life and give me joy even now. So what we confess in the Catechism too. I begin even now the joy of eternal life. Uh, and that too is the gift of God. Uh, the kind of faith that, that, that trusts in God who justifies the ungodly, that faith itself is the gift of God. Uh, it's a gift that's made possible by Christ, and it's given sovereignly by God. Again, a scary thing for sinners. Uh, you can't have faith unless it's given to you by God, but a tremendous blessing for those who have it. Uh, God gives faith to those whom he pleases. Uh, Christ's death then uh, becomes the means by which we are made right with God uh, and the only basis by which we can walk before God by faith in the futility of this life, confident that he will nonetheless walk us through this life and carry us out beyond this life. The God who brought us in, the God who walked with us through, is the God who will carry us beyond. Now that kind of joy and confidence uh, is a gift of God, and it's rooted and grounded in the death of Christ. It's really, uh, it's a bit anachronistic to say this, but it's really amazing how, how Calvinistic, if you can say that, this, this book of Ecclesiastes is. It brings you before a sovereign God who gives to whom he wills. Uh, to the sinner, it, it's a miserable business of wasting your life, and it's not God's fault, it's your fault. You're the one who ran down those roads. But to the one on whom God shows his favor, you find by his grace wisdom, knowledge, and joy, even in a broken and futile world. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing together from Psalm 115, stanzas 5 and 6.